Welcome to the Gateway House podcast. My name is Vipratap Vikram Singh. Today we're going to be talking about France's response to the Paris attacks. We have Ambassador Neelam Deo here with us and we're going to be discussing the legality of the military airstrikes that France is undertaking as well as the mutual defense clause invoked by France as per the Lisbon Treaty. Thank you for joining us Neelam. Over the last few days the French retaliatory strikes against ISIS in Syria has increased considerably. This coming after President Hollande declared the attack on Paris as an act of war. The airstrikes have been successful in setting back ISIS in a number of ways, taking out facilities and buildings and and such. However, there's a question as far as the legality of these airstrikes. Um can you shed some light especially as far as whether these are covered under Article 51 of the United Nations Charter? you know uh, the un charter and actually all uh, international conventions which deal with war uh, make provisions for self defense so yes this can be easily uh, justified under uh, self defense because paris has been attacked it has been the victim of a terrorist uh, attack and particularly in this case because isis uh, calls itself a state it's not just an organization like al qaeda was or you know any other terrorist organization so this is certainly uh, a legal position uh, in any case the legality i think has not exercised the minds of western uh, leaders very much because they were already at war with uh, isis you know the us was bombing there uh, france was already bombing it's only stepped up its uh, its bombing russia was uh, bombing in the region australia numerous countries were already uh, engaged in military activities and they were not doing anything to conceal them so i don't think they were much concerned with whether it was legal or not but it is legally justifiable uh, as an act of self defense because isis in fact has also declared war against uh, the whole world and it claims statehood and just as a matter of fact on the ground it does control territory and uh, people which is the definition of statehood yeah it's, it's uh, that's a very valid point and it is definitely something to take into consideration um but moving moving forward i mean uh, Fre- president hollande also uh, made an announcement on monday where he was at uh, where he met with the various leaders of the of the eu and he invoked article 42.7 of the lisbon treaty which is defined as uh, a mutual self defense under the eu which was which was interesting considering france is also a member of nato why is it that um, he invoked this mutual defense clause and not um, the collective security clause under the nato so there are two problems related to invoking the security clause under nato one is that um, uh, russia is also in that same arena uh, nato was set up and continues to be inspired by a anti russian attitude so if uh, the nato clause had been uh, invoked then uh, there to make cooperation with russia would have been much uh, harder and as it is uh, there is a growing recognition even though there will not be an acknowledgement 
that Russian bombing in the in the area has been much more successful, much more effective against ISIS, even though Russia is also uh, done more than 50% of its bombing has been against other anti-Assad uh, groups uh, on the ground. But uh, American bombing has been slow and lackadaisical and not effective. And in any case, it was not bombing ISIS at all. It was really uh, looking to degrade uh, groups that were, uh, that were pro-Assad, the Assad army. So I think they probably felt that in order to coordinate better with Russia and also to coordinate better with Iran, who has some special forces on the ground, again, which are much more effective against ISIS than uh, anybody else is willing to put on the, uh, on the ground. The other uh, question uh, that has been raised is why, why uh, Olande did not uh, call for the European Union. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I think that may have to do with how cumbersome and long drawn out the process of decision making within the European Union is. Uh, and the fact that uh, there are uh, real differences within the European Union, which may have made the decision making even more uh, complex and, and definitely more uh, long drawn out. You know, Hungary has a position very different from the others, especially on the refugee inflow from uh, uh, through, uh, especially through Greece. Um, and there are other countries like, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, resentment and tension within the European Union uh, regarding the EU's decision on uh, quotas that all its members must absorb of Syrian refugees. Now this decision was taken under pressure from Germany because otherwise all the refugees were going to end up in uh, Germany and it's difficult to regulate and manage the inflow. Uh, but it is leading to some very uh, you know, tragic situations, situations that would be laughable if they were not so, so tragic. Uh, the Polish uh, minister, for instance, has suggested that you take all these uh, Syrian men who are coming in here and instead of letting them sit there and drink coffee, Maybe they should go and fight uh, ISIS on the ground, etc. I mean, this is a kind of uh, arrogance, which, uh, if directed against uh, people from another European country, would have had uh, all of Europe and the world and the US, etc., come down on him like a ton of bricks. But these are Arabs, these are Syrians fleeing a civil war that is being mostly propped up by various European countries and the United States. So he hasn't been criticized so far. But the problem is the tensions within European Union, the differences, the huge differences of view, and the cumbersome decision-making process. So what will happen now is that since you know, uh, Europe doesn't have an army, a unified army, uh, it gives uh, France the freedom to negotiate what it can get uh, bilaterally with each of the big uh, European countries, those that have a military capacity such as the UK or Germany or even Poland itself. Right, I exactly like you had mentioned, um, <clears throat> France, is, France has stated that they are looking to form a coalition and to make a, a strong party to, to counter ISIS and as of now naturally the, the uh, three members that will definitely be in this are the, are the United States, Russia and France. Um, the U, uh, David Cameron has mentioned that he's uh, looking to go back to the, U to the UK Parliament 
and ask them to revisit their um, their decision on uh, whether to have airstrikes on Syria and to get involved in that. Do you think anything is going to come of that? Do you think the UK will do a turnaround? Yes, you know this kind of incident always brings forth the most uh, militaristic uh, uh, sentiment uh, and instincts in uh, all countries. <coughs> so France has already announced that it's not going to abide by the deficit rules that the European Union requires it to and it's going to raise uh, you know, its uh, security forces and of course the expenses will go up. Uh, UK has already announced that it will be allocating almost three billion dollars over the next five years to uh, strengthen its uh, security forces, mostly internal, but perhaps also some will go to its defense forces. So the UK is keen to join, has been keen for some time to join this because you had the UK defense minister say a couple of weeks ago that uh, UK could not depend on its, uh, should not depend for its security on others fighting ISIS, meaning uh, the US and France, etc. They will definitely go back to their parliament. And I think this time the parliament is likely to go along. This time, I think even the UK public uh, will not be as strongly opposed as it was in the earlier case, where, which is why the parliament voted against uh, the uh, joining the bombing. Um, I think all the European countries at this precise moment are um, in a funk. Uh, if they waited a few months, of course, people may uh, take a more reasonable position. In France itself, it had protested and critiqued the decision of the US to invade uh, Iraq and had stayed out of those, uh, those measures and that kind of NATO action. Uh, but this time when it was itself attacked, it has the next day uh, raised the scale and level of its bombing. So immediately after an incident like this, the pressure on a government to take military action is high. Right, and in it, in it seems that the problem isn't over. I mean, France is is as of as we are recording this podcast. Uh, France is currently still going through there, still going through Paris, still finding terrorists. There was a shootout earlier today. So it, it definitely seems like there's a, still a lot of tension and a lot of uh, conflict that's happening within the country. And this, this, brings, this brings you to a statement that uh, Pope Francis made um, when he was into, asked about these attacks, where, he's, uh, where he keeps mentioning that this is almost like a piecemeal third world war. And it's a, it's, do you think that this is something along that line that we've in, sort of stumbled into a third world war? Well, I don't know if it's a third world war because my sense is that you have a world war when the whole world, all the countries are involved or at least are theatres of war. Uh, many countries which are not presently involved, presently you have the Middle East, Europe and the United States. But countries like India have been in the past, uh, you know, uh, victims of terrorist attacks. There could be more. Uh, but we are not part of this uh, heightened state of antagonism and hostilities and war, as France has declared, as yet. So my sense is that earlier you had world wars because uh, much of the world had been colonized. So even though India was had neither gain nor enmity, it, hundreds of thousands of Indian soldiers 
fought in the first and the second world war because we were part of the british empire on that scale no i don't think uh, we will participate and nor will it be a world war on that scale what it does seem to be and everyone talks about is a civilizational conflict not exactly in the huntington sense of a war between christianity and islam but it is being projected including by muslim scholars as a war within islam between uh, the moderates and extremists between uh, modernizers and those who want to remain uh, and live within a literal uh, interpretation uh, of the quran in other words want to live within conditions that prevailed at the time of the prophet centuries ago so uh, that gap uh, is difficult to bridge uh, but uh, in trying to arrive at some convergence between within the muslim community uh, there are going to be uh, victims it's going to take time and many of the uh, westphalian concepts out of europe which were imposed upon the arab world and you know the the region of the ottoman empire are actually being called into question countries like iraq or syria that were drawn up arbitrarily under the sykes picot act are unraveling uh, the kurds who were denied uh, a country may actually be able to form a larger country than the one that they already operate that is the iraqi uh, the kurdistan within uh, iraq uh, there the the only uh, long existing states roughly in their present boundaries in this region are actually iran uh, turkey and uh, and uh, uh, the rest are really uh, creations after the first or the second world war and uh, all of their present structures are threatened right um lastly you had mentioned about india's involvement in in these kind of conflicts um modi is not been very keen on sending forces in indian forces into in this involvement with isis and um even after the even after the paris attacks in at the g20 he was more uh, in favor of curbing the uh, terrorist funding rather than anything else um do you do you think that with the with the bid of a un security council seat um modi might be urged or prompted to reconsider this decision and get a little bit more involved well, i have two things to say one is of course that as yet nobody has asked india to send in forces uh, and i don't think we need to uh, get into other people's fights uh, we really need to draw attention to the fact that does not get considered is uh, which is state sponsored terrorism what india has been a victim of is terrorism sponsored by the state of pakistan and its agencies whether it is the isi whether it is the army whoever but those groups that threaten india ha- are not uh, spontaneous and are certainly not self financing in the way that isis is they are nurtured trained financed and motivated by uh, the uh, wings of the uh, pakistani state that issue must gain recognition from uh, from other countries who uh, may at some stage seek uh, india's cooperation 
Uh, the other thing is whether sending troops into this area is necessarily wise. Uh, India has 20% uh, of India's uh, uh, population of Muslims, which, is, who, which are nearly 200 million, uh, are Shia. Do we really want to get into what is being made more and more, what is being projected more and more as a Shia-Sunni conflict? I think not, especially since relations between Shias and Sunnis in India are largely peaceful. Uh, certainly the Muslim community in India is very concerned about what is happening to their co-religionists. But uh, there has been no uh, great uh, push for our, uh, for our Muslim community to somehow get involved in that. And a, a, a democratically uh, elected government should not rush into areas where, uh, where uh, its people and its constituencies are not pushing it to do so. And finally, it would be a tragedy for the world if the only and the, or the most important qualification for being a member of the Security Council is to join in military operations. India is largely a peacekeeper. You know, we have been contributing to peacekeeping in uh, numerous conflicts and uh, we should uh, remain focused on those kinds of activities. If we were to join the Security Council, we should bring to bear on it our history of having been colonized, of having survived the violence that colonization brings upon countries and uh, some of the problems in the Middle East which are playing out today are direct consequences of the colonization of the region by the British, by uh, the French and subsequently by American uh, politics uh, in the region. So uh, I would su suggest that we should certainly join international efforts, but they should be genuinely international efforts, not serving the interests of one or two uh, countries. And we should join those efforts which tend towards peace rather than towards uh, military actions. You've been listening to the Gateway House podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and wish to receive more content like this, follow us on SoundCloud and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Thank <music> you.